0: You may be seated. My name is Keith Case, and I'm a pastor here at Providencia. And um, just here to briefly introduce uh, Jordan Smith to you all. Uh, many of you all know Jordan. Jordan hails from the great city of Edinburgh in uh, Scotland. He is a long descendant of William Wallace. Some of you may be familiar with William Wallace from the movie Braveheart. And um, I think it was his great, great grandfather. Um, so. That's not true. But anyway, um, Jordan is a culinary priest. If you want food recommendations uh, for some of the strip malls here in Palm Beach County, he can tell you where to get the best Vietnamese food. He can tell you where to get the best tacos, the best uh, Mexican ice cream. Uh, He can take you to the best Indian cuisine here in Palm Beach County, which is very thin. Um, But he knows, he knows these places. Uh, He has a blog. It hasn't been written on in a while, called Hungry Man on a Honda. He's changed it now, I think, because he has a Vespa. The voracious Vespa. Yeah, the the voracious Vespa. So things are looking up for Jordan. He's upgraded from Honda to Vespa life. Um, Jordan is also, this is on a serious note, he's also the chair of the White Caucus here in uh, Palm Beach County uh, for organizing against racism. As many of you know, we've been a part of a thing called The Conversation with Tabernacle Missionary Baptist Church, which Jordan heads up. And uh, out of that, the Racial Equity Institute uh, asked Jordan and actually Scott Hansel, who is an elder here at our church, to head up the White Caucus here in our city. And so grateful for his leadership in that space as well. He's also a pastor at Memorial. Uh, That's where they pay him. And uh, he does all these things for our church on a volunteer basis. And he's been here since the beginning. And his voice and his fingerprint is all over this church. And for that, we're grateful. I will just say this before I invite him up. Jordan is a brilliant man. I knew that from the first time I met him, and I I love his perspective that he brings being uh, not from the US. I had a teacher in college who was from the UK, from London, and she made me get a map of the world that was not American-centric, and I said, what do you mean? And she said, you know, not with America in the middle of it. And I just was kind of taken back by that and how America so often thinks that we are the center of the world. And the map she made me get had Britain at the center of the world. But anyway, um, still the perspective, it's so helpful and it's so healthy and and Jordan has really challenged me. But what I wanted to say is this, there's no one in this city that I have had more fun playing with than Jordan. He has the spiritual gift of playfulness. So if you know him, if you've been around him, especially at a party, uh, you know how much fun he is. So without further ado, Jordan Smith.
1: Thank you, Keith. I was trying to do the math there on that William Wallace joke. William Wallace was born in 1294 and was executed in 1314 by the English. Um, So I would need to be really, 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 really old. Anyway, so I am fun, but today I'm talking about heaven and hell. You know, just like begin the year off on a nice easy foot, easier way in there, um, and just dip our toe in the waters of all things theology. Heaven and hell, it's a hell of a problem. So today we're really just going to, we have a whole month of exploring reimagine eternity. So my hope for today is just to kind of set the table of what are some of the factors at play in the way we think about heaven and hell? What are some preconceived notions we all hold? What are some historical, philosophical things that have influenced those and what can we sift through and get to what does the Bible actually say about heaven and hell? So we want to look at what's being said. We want to discover what's behind that historically, philosophically, literally, and then we can say how can we live now with the perspective of eternity? Those are the three things we're going to explore. A little today. I'm sure you are all aware that the news this week has been kind of crazy. Um, There was the drone assassination of an Iranian general Soleimani um, at Baghdad airport, and that caused for three days World War Three hashtag WW3 to trend. And we're all thinking, what on earth is going on? Are we going to go to war with Iran? That does not sound like fun. Are we going to get called up as conscripts? Are we going to have to start training for a war? We look at Australia where bushfires have raged for months and they look like there's no stop in sight. We look at global warming, famines, wars all across the world. We look at the political map of the world and it is as polarized as we can remember in recent memory. In the UK with Brexit, China, Xi Jinping was just elected leader forever of the Communist Party. Uh, Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, um, a hard, hard right leader there. And Nahira Modi in India with the Hindu National Party who is persecuting all other people in the country. So all the big economies of the world seem to be politically on the attack. They seem to have a polarized narrative of for us to be successful, it means that we don't need anybody else. We need ourselves and we want our true ethnic selves to be the one. So things seem just so tense, some things precariously balanced and that the world just now seems like a tinderbox, just ready for a spark. So where does that leave us? What perspective do we need to have of, how do we engage with what may seem like hell on earth now with a theologically sound Christian perspective? And I think one thing I wanna hammer home today is that the things we're gonna look at are grounded that the Bible was given for the people in their original context to give them a perspective of what does it mean for you to experience God now. They're not just things that point towards the future, but whenever God spoke to his people, they said something to them then in their immediate context. So um, I'd like to, whoever is doing the clicking, can you put up that first picture, please? Here we go. So this is actually a picture of Great Britain day one after Brexit. It's not really. That was a joke. So this is an 1825 picture um, by a guy called John Martin. Um, and this was loosely based on Paradise Lost, um, a poem by John Milton. And I thought this really kind of sums up. That if, you, if we went down Clematis and said, what is hell like? What have you heard about hell? They would. I'm not saying Clematis is like hell. I'm saying that you would just, your average Joe walking down Clematis, you pick their brain and say, can you describe what you think hell is like? I imagine it would be something like this. That you got a guy with like a pitchfork, a red cape, fire, lava, like it just does not look like a fun place to be. And my question is like, where where do we where do we glean this from? Why is this what we think of um, when we think of hell? And it comes from a place of so much fear. It says none of us want to go on vacation there. We're not checking out the price of the Airbnb in that building back there. We are scared of that. We don't want it. And we if we've Grown up in a church that promotes a vision like this, we are scared, God seems vengeful, God seems angry, and we walk on eggshells to make sure we do the right thing so we don't end up somewhere remotely like this. But my question is, where does this all come from? Where do we get this picture from? Let me think of also the cultural fallout that this creates. It's that if this is where the earth is going, we don't want to have anything to do with that. We want to remove ourselves from culture. We want to become separate from culture. Because if God is judging culture, and this is where that ends up, we want nothing to do with that. And I think that's where we start to see Christians throughout history completely withdrawing from culture. And saying, culture is bad, culture is tainted, and this is where culture ends up. So we want to create something separate, something holy, something different. And for me, that is just completely disembodied. It's completely disconnected from what Scripture teaches us. And we need to flip our perspective and say that this comes from a thousand different places and not much of it is rooted in Scripture. So how can we parse apart what from this is real and what from this is motivated by history, by literature, by our country of origin, there's so many factors at play that make us think that this is what hell is like when we talk about hell. There's also, I'm sure some of you have heard, um, a guy called Dante um, who wrote a book called The Divine Comedy at the start of the 1300s, and that was very influential in starting to paint the picture of what hell is actually like with the fire. And he wrote this in a time of personal journey himself. He had been kicked out of the, Italy wasn't formed as a country then, at that time. He lived in the northern part of Italy near Milan now, and he was kicked out for supporting the wrong political party. And in his time of exile was when he wrote this book, and it was his struggle, and it was, his, it was an allegory of his struggle and his wrestling with, what does it mean for me to walk with God when I have been kicked out of the place I call home? So, I'm just going to read a few um, verses from the Old, or mostly the New Testament, pardon me, um, that speak to hell. So, this is from Matthew 25 46. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And I think that's a dichotomy we're all familiar with. It's one or the other. You either go to hell or you either go to heaven. There's no middle ground in between. It's very clear, it's black and white. God decides, you guys go over here, you guys go over there. It's one or the other. And I was really struck in my, um, I had a friend who was a a pastor, he was from um, Jordan. um, And he was talking in a class one time about the parable of the sheep and the goats. Are you all familiar with that one? that God is separating the sheep to this side, the goats to that side. And in in my head, I'm like, sheep are little white things that are all nice and fluffy, and goats are kind of, you might see them on a yoga mat, or they're kind of like little fuzzy little brown things that look really different. So I'm like, it's black and white, it's clear. Sheep go there, goats go there. And he just kind of sat back in his chair and laughed and said, those are European sheep, you're thinking of, Jordan. Sheep in the Middle East look really, really like goats. And I was like, What? And he like put up on his laptop and showed me a picture. And they look exactly the same. So, So the point in that parable is completely flipped. It says that God decides, we don't. We can't really tell unless you're an expert and you really know. So a parable we read is something that's completely obvious to the people in the original context means actually the exact opposite. So all that to say, when we start engaging with literature that's metaphorical, that talks about things in the abstract, we have to root ourselves in the first century context and say first, what, does it, what did it mean to them then? What was going on then for them? In order for us to really start to grapple and understand what does it mean to us today? Um, the second verse comes from Revelation 21, verse eight. Um, and This is from the ESV. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Yikes, right? So we see this intense imagery of fire, of flames, of this is what awaits people that do not follow God. The second uh, or the third reading is from Luke 16, 19 through 31. And this is the parable of Lazarus. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed, of that which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came to lick Lazarus's wounds. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, that would be heaven in the Jewish mind. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, which would be hell in the ancient mind, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So that parable there that the poor man um, was given reward in heaven and the rich man for his greed was sent to Hades. So we believe that people, or we've heard that people go to, because of what people believe now, there's an eternal consequence to that. If you, you either say yes or you say no, If you say yes to God, to Jesus, you go to heaven. If you say no, there's the fiery lakes that await us. And this imagery is so rich, it's provocative, it's harrowing, and it can really drive us to be scared of God. It can can drive us to not want to engage with God and to lead and to believe in God from a place of fear and see God as dangerous, and we live a spiritual life of walking on eggshells, of not wanting to end up somewhere like this. There's torture, there's torment, there's lakes of fire, and we believe maybe there's different levels of punishment. Can we get the second picture, please? So this is something much cheerier, and obviously pastels are in color in heaven. So this is a clear picture of what I think is, comes to mind when we think of, of heaven. We have clouds, we have angels, maybe a few little harps, some songs going on, not much clothing. Like everything's all just kind of innocent, celestial, and we're all just kind of like hanging out in the sky. And have you note know clearly that what, what, what's happening to earth? People are leaving, right? So they're kind of going up into the sky to meet God there. And earth, you notice the earth is this like kind of dark tone that is a lot like the blues, not quite as bright as the blue above. So there's this idea that when God comes back, we leave the earth. That the earth is kind of dim and dark and there's no real life there. And for us to experience true life and come to true life, and you see that like they're in these like dark clothes, and then as soon as you get to heaven, you're all ripped. Like it's like this is the transformation that happens. Right? Who needs CrossFit when you have this? So th- this is kind of the, so we get all these pictures in our mind that that it, this implies so much that we're never fully ourselves on earth, and we only really truly reach our human or spiritual potential in the life after, in heaven. And we have to start to sit through and say so much of this is dangerous and unhelpful, and so much of this misdirects us from the full life that God calls us to live in the here and now. If we live a life that is entirely focused on the future and the life to come, we miss so much of what God calls us to inhabit and embody in this life here now on earth as it is in heaven, as it says in the Lord's Prayer. I have a few verses that speak to heaven from the New Testament. From Matthew 5 verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And a little more in depth and a little more well-known from Revelation 21, one through five. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, Write this down, for these words are true and trustworthy. So we think that of heaven that there is healing, there is the time that it's only really going to be fully realized in heaven. We know that in our human experience here, we see and taste and experience so much brokenness, so much pain that we can't imagine what earth would be like without pain, without brokenness. So we go to a place of, for God's presence to be real, and for us to truly experience that life that God calls us to, we can't comprehend what it means for the world to play a role in that. Because it's so entrenched within us that the world is broken. The world is dangerous. The world will corrupt us. And we have to remove and even purge yourselves from the world's influences to be a true, obedient Christian. Um, the verse that we kind of, so we're kind of jumping around a bunch of different verses today, but in your little bulletins, the one that we had framed this sermon on um, is 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, 17, which if any of you have seen the Life Behind series, um, this is like where that idea comes from and is based on. Uh, 1 Thessalonians four seventeen. after that we who are still alive on their life will be caught up together with them in the clouds and to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be with the Lord forever. Um, in theological jargon, um, this verse and this kind of theological idea of people going up, and on one hand is called the rapture, um, but more theologically and specifically it's called the parousia. So in, in Greek, the parousia would be a procession. So if Caesar won a war, when Caesar won his Gallic Wars, um, that the people lined outside of Rome for four miles, there was a huge line that welcomed the victorious soldiers in. Caesar came in on his white horse as a victor, and the people of Rome came out to greet their victor. And this is the language that's trying to get across here is the people of God will come out to greet Jesus as he comes back to heaven, comes back to earth. So that's where we get this idea of, from that one verse is where we get the idea of we will leave this earth and we will go up to be with God in heaven. But that leaves us with some serious theological problems, which we'll unpack a little bit later on. And also in the New Testament, we have a variety of different language used to talk about the afterlife. We have heaven and we have the criminal on the cross. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, a really ambiguous word. Um, And we have to engage what does it mean for the people then and how can we translate to that now? But what we're left with in the way we so often talk about heaven and hell is something that is removed from this earth completely, removed from the physical experiences our bodies and it's something that's completely disembodied from a holistic perspective of the person of someone that is spirit someone that is flesh and someone that is soul and it leaves a significant problem for us to engage with what does this mean for god's plan for creation what does this mean for god's redemption of eden that there's an entire arc of the biblical narrative that says god is redeeming god is restoring god will rebuild God will rebuild. And at the very end of that arc of redemption, we say, actually, God's not going to rebuild. He's going to, re- He's going to destroy and start again somewhere up here. And for me, that is a big theological problem. What is the continuity? And how can we connect a robust understanding of heaven and hell with that theological arc of continuing to restore, rebuild, and redeem the earth, not just destroying it, and taking believers somewhere up here. Um, So we're going to briefly, in around five minutes, talk about 2,000 years of history um, and how this has all come together. We often go to Revelation as the place where we understand and where we go to when we think about heaven. I'm sure we've all been to funerals when the book of Revelation has been read, and I, too, in times of distress um, and needing comfort in death have turned to those hopes of Revelation, that one day all tears will be wiped away. And they are true, they are true. But we have to think that when was Revelation written? Revelation, historians, theologians think, was written in, in and around the year 90, um, so 60 years or so after the death of Jesus. And around that time, there was an emperor whose name was Domitian, and he was a really, really bad dude. He, so there was Domitian, Nero, and Vespasian. They were the three big persecutions of Christians, and Domitian was vindictive. He saw Christians as a scourge on his empire, and he ruthlessly sought out to wipe them off the face of the earth. And if you've heard the adages of um, Christians being fed to lions in the Colosseum, um, Domitian was the first emperor to do that practice. So this letter is written to an audience who is going through an unbelievable time of persecution. Rome is their Babylon. Rome is oppressing. Then, there, then. Death was imminent. Death was at the door. They were being persecuted. And they knew for you to be a Christian is a dangerous, dangerous thing. So for a biblical book to be given to this people, but that doesn't apply until the future, would just be cruel and mean. God wants to speak into those people's lives. There's hope for them in the immediate, but also for us now. One helpful way I heard it explained is, this sort of progressive, this revelation that can mean one thing then and more things now is like looking at a mountain range head on. When, you're, when the mountain is directly in front of you, you see one point. But when you kind of approach it on the side, you can see that there's kind of an undulation and progressive peaks. And it's only in hindsight that, that you can realize that. So God was speaking foremost to the people of God then and futurely to us now in a time when all tears would be wiped away. And then we go again to, um, as we spoke about in the the first picture we saw of Dante in, in the Middle Ages. The life expectancy was short. There was plagues, there was warring nations, there was complete political instability. They lived such a different life than we do now that those sort of imageries of death were so much more present to the people then. And importantly for us, um, at the time of the Reformation, which birthed the Protestant movement, and it was birthed out of a critique of what the Catholic Church, or the only church at that time, was preaching. And it was partly, it was preaching control. It says that, you guys, you don't really need to read the Bible. That's only for the priests to do, and we'll tell you what it means. So it was complete control. They did not have access to the Bible in their own language. It was only what the priest told them. It's what they would know of the Bible. It's a reaction against control. And when the enlightenment was birthed, it says that man man can discover all things through his mind, through knowledge, through discovery. And the unlimited human potential is stored within us all. We reject the spiritual because we can't define that. We can't really clearly understand that. What man is interested in is defining things, understanding things, and using logic. And our Protestant tradition comes all from that part of Western Europe, which is so entrenched in that mindset of understanding, compartmentalizing, and saying, what does it mean to understand and to know? I know God through Scripture. I understand God through theology. And there's a rejection slowly of the spiritual. So for us to think about heaven redeeming the physical is a disconnect to that stage from history from which it comes. And we kind of fast forward into more like the turn of the 20th century. It's around the year 1900. And the famous Welsh poet, um, you may have heard this at funerals also, he has a, a line that says, in speaking towards death, he says, rage, rage, rage against the dying of the light that there's this existentialism, this nihilism, um, which Nietzsche and other guys are really influential in building that after this there's nothing because we can't understand it, we can't know it. This is all we have. So we reject anything beyond that. Um, in my homeland, Scotland, which is the birthplace of the Presbyterian church, less than four percent of people would go to church regularly. So four percent of people would go to church regularly. You may laugh at this, but the size of this church here would be a large church in Scotland. I went to a high school of 1,600 people, and I knew of three other people that went to church regularly. And you may ask, how did this happen? So the church attendance was booming. 1914, the First World War, up until 1994, which was, some of you may remember, Princess Diana um, was killed in a car crash. That kind of window is seen to be when the decline of church attendance happens and the UK and Europe becomes post-Christian. You say, Jordan, why is this important? Um, Because it shows how we forgot to engage the Christian imagination and what it means to live from an internal perspective. In World War I, 1914, just before that, the British Empire had conquered the world. There was a phrase that it was an empire in which the sun never set. As far east as Malaysia and Singapore, and as far west as Canada and all the other colonies. Europe, New Zealand, Africa, Asia, it was all over the place. And what it was driven on was human potential. Man has unlimited human potential we can discover all things, we can know all things, and we can harness the power of God within us all. That is all up here. And just at the turn of the 20th century, they looked around and said, look what we have done. Look what we have conquered. Look at the advances in technology we've made. Look at the advances in medicine we've made. We have done this all. And they felt that they were getting closer and closer to God, taking them away for accomplishing the Great Commission. They believe, look God, look what we've done. We've brought civilization, we've brought Christianity to all corners of the world. And it was just around about this time in 1889 in a little town in the south of England um, called Plymouth where and the denomination I grew up in actually, the Brethren, started to think about this idea called dispensationalism, which is where at the end we would all be taken up. So this is where the idea starts to come into place at so the time in history where it says, man is conquering man is doing it all man is achieving and god like we've graduated we've done it's time for you to take us up to be with you but then not long after that you have world war one not long after that you have world war ii you have the spanish flu where a huge proportion of the world population dies and gradually there's war after war after war man starts to harness more of its potential for evil for destruction And we come to the end of the 20th century and man is saying, what have we done? What has happened in this past 100 years? And what has happened is that they have stared the darkness of human potential in the face. Man's potential for war, man's potential for destruction, man's potential for greed, and man's potential to destroy one another. That 100-year gap really shows the swing from we've not engaged, we've not participated, we've not left, not lived from an eternal perspective. And my continent, Europe just now has very little Christian presence. And I think part of that is to do with its unwillingness historically, not, not necessarily a fault of their own, to not want to engage to transform culture, but to just transform their spiritual or just to transform the internal. But God is calling us to our radical perspective of, if we want to live from resurrection, if we want to live from that eternal perspective, It means bringing glimpses of heaven now on earth as it is in heaven. We think also of the Jewish view. And when they thought of hell, they spoke in the terms of Sheol, which was the same word for the depths of the sea. It was this ambivalent place of rest where good, bad, and everybody in between went. And that judgment would happen at the end, all together, at one time. There's no real understanding of personal salvation. You were saved because you were Jewish. So I think this starts to, this kind of whole philosophy of not engaging with culture, not wanting to see it transformed, gives us some pretty major headaches in how we engage with culture. And we'll go through those quickly. So it gives us permission to reject culture. It gives us permission to say culture's not important because I'm not part of it, because I belong to somewhere else. So we don't engage. And we can also create just weird Christian subversions of what is going on in culture. But yet we're called to engage and we're called to transform culture. Secondly, it says that the world isn't important. If it's getting destroyed, who cares about global warming? We have no desire or no need to engage in the transformation of the actual physical world if we have a worldview that we're just going to get taken away and God's going to destroy it anyway. It doesn't make our bodies important because we say, we're going to get new ones anyway. And it's only really the spiritual that matters. We can downplay physical health, we can downplay mental health, and we can downplay spiritual health if we have this world, this view that our bodies don't matter. And there's no real need to work or to transform this earth because it's all going away anyway. And I think it also has some pretty significant spiritual and theological problems. Because it says that God isn't redeeming, he's starting again. We, we struggle to connect that entire arch of the, of the narrative of God of redeeming, of redeeming. It just says at the end he washes his hands and starts again. There's the promises of renewal versus the destruction and building of something new. And also if you it enables us, or it shows God as someone who wants to punish, someone who's angry, and someone who's vengeful, and it does not flow with God's arch of redemption. And we start to think of what does it mean for us to really engage with heaven, and how can we have that in focus? Um, can we have the quote up there, please? Um, so this is from N.T. Right. This was. So I grew up in the Brethren. and um, I kind of nominally went. I was never really super engaged because I thought like Edinburgh is like a it's a center of arts and culture. Um, Edinburgh has a festival in August called The Fringe where Edinburgh has a population of 500,000 people and a million people visit Edinburgh um, every year in the month of August. And it's just the most culturally rich place. It's known as the Athens of the North. And my little old church just kind of did their own thing and never really spoke about the outside. It was like kind of dangerous. It could corrupt you. You don't really want to kind of go there. And I read this book, um, and I felt like I became a Christian all over again. So this is a quote from N.T. Wright, Surprised by Hope, who's really wrestling with these questions of what does it mean for us to be people that are engaged in living out of that inter- eternal perspective of resurrection hope. Resurrection hope lived now. It says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. Um, I was a little triggered by the word colonize, but that is the language that is used. And we think of Rome was what Jesus was speaking to, who had colonized the entire world. And this is what we have to, we as people of the margin, as people of the periphery, have to start to think, how can we redeem, how can we restore, how can we bring that resurrection hope back to people on earth now as it is in heaven. Because that rebuilding process can start now. It does not have to wait until eternity. All of us here in this room can start to experience that new hope, that new life, and those tastes and those glimpses of heaven here and now on earth as it is in heaven. A slightly lengthier quote from the same book. The point of the resurrection is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has great future in store for it. What you do in the present by painting, by preaching, by singing, by sewing, by praying, by teaching, by building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy and loving your neighbor as yourself will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly or boring and a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. As that owl fly away hymn says, they're part of what we may call building for God's kingdom now. So all the things we do with our life now matter immensely. It's not just whether we say yes or no to God. It's to what extent are we living a fulfilled full flourishing life now through God's power. There's a redemption and there's a transformation and there's us called to participate in the upside down economy of God's grace. We are called to transform by the way we live our life. And Hell in focus gets a little bit more kind of tricky. We have very little to go on in the New Testament. There's metaphorical language, but ultimately it's separation from God at the deepest level. It's a rejection of our humanity as people made in the image of God. And candidly, I don't know, and I don't think I have any biblical permission to paint an exact picture of what that looks like. But at the deepest level, it's it's the rejection of what makes us human. And that's being made in the image of God. And I think as a motivation, we evangelize because we believe that God offers the best life now, not just to escape from hell. I truly believe that the best life now is lived through God's power, God's strength, and that redemption now like it is in heaven. heaven. And we know so well that hell and Satan have power now. All we have to do is to flick on our news. Stories of suicides, of war, of famine, of division, versus with the other powers of life, peace, plenty, and unity. We feel and we see those two powers and forces at play in our world today. And they're not just powers and forces that are reserved for the hereafter. We can see those two kingdoms battling and jostling for power now. And we are called to be people who participate in bringing the redemption and glimpses of the heaven now on earth as it is in heaven. So what next? Where can we go with these ideas? And I think that our horizon had has to always be God breathing into the present, not escape in the future. Our horizon has to be God breathing into the present, not escape in the future. All aspects of our life, the darkest parts, the most painful parts of our life, of our nation's life, and of the world, we can believe and we can try for God to break into those purposes. We can't reject it and say it doesn't matter, we're going somewhere else. The somewhere else we're going is this very world being restored and rebuilt in God's glory and God's image. And we are called to participate in that process now. God has come and he's began to build his kingdom on earth now as it is in heaven. And we can begin to taste that transformation in the present. It's not just something we are waited for in the future. We can be people that live from the power of resurrection, not people that live from the fear of hell. And I think that's an important distinction to make, is that we can be people that are rooted in the power and the hope of the resurrection, not people that are living a life in fear of hell. We are people who believe that God will transform and redeem all things, all wrongs, and all injustices. But we are called to participate in that renewal in the present. Would you pray with me?